is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Hurricane Ian slamming into Florida. It's now smashing into the southwest part of the state in the Fort Myers area as a Category 4 storm with winds of about 150 miles an hour. There's already been power outages, flooding, and storm surges in the region. We'll go in-depth into what damage it might do to Florida. A couple million people have been told to evacuate, but some people are staying home to weather this colossal storm. We'll talk to, actually it turns out to be a relative of mine, who's doing just that in the Tampa area. We'll find out uh, how smart he is. And Russia is trying to keep people from leaving the country, while the U.S. is trying to get its own citizens out. We look into a lie. I was wondering, is this the cousin we've talked about on the air before? No. Or is it a different one? Different one. Okay. Different right. one. Katie Couric announcing she's been treated for breast cancer. Might have been caught earlier, if not for the pandemic. So we'll talk about that. New study shows some promise for a new drug to treat Alzheimer's. We'll look at what it shows and when it might be available for people, what the side effects are. And Bill O'Reilly will join us at the end of the show. Former Fox News host will share his thoughts on what's happening in D.C. and talk about his new book about the deaths of major celebrities. But we start with Hurricane Ian, Hugh Will. Willoughby is a professor at Florida International University in Miami. He is a former research meteorologist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and has flown more than 400 missions into the eyes of hurricanes and typhoons. Hugh, thanks for being with us. This is a bad one. How bad? Yeah, it's uh, uh, not quite the worst case scenario, but it's a very bad case. Uh the winds are just a little bit short, uh, weaker than Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Michael of a couple of years ago. Uh, but the, the thing is, on the west coast of Florida, they're uh, more subject to storm surge uh, because it's lower coast and because there's shallow water offshore. And uh, uh, so we're dealing with inland flooding. Wind and storm surge, those are the three damaging elements that historically cause about the same amount of damage. Can you take us through what happens during storm surge? Because we hear the phrase all the time, paint that picture for me and how bad it can get. Well, the in, in this case, the wind's blowing right on shore, uh, at least south of the landfall point, and it pushes the water up to up to the shore and then over what's normally dry land they're talking about 16 feet of storm surge so um that's two stories it's going to be sort of well i hope that people have evacuated let's leave it at that and and what cities in particular i know early on they were worried the most about tampa what cities are really in the crosshairs Honestly, I haven't looked at the map. It's uh, 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 I, I didn't look at the map, to be honest. Uh, uh, but uh, the estuary is the estuary just south of uh, the next big estuary south of uh, 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 Tampa Bay. And uh, uh, it's the same area that was affected by Hurricane Charlie in the early 2000s. We mentioned you've flown into more than 400 of these or 400 missions up there. What is it like when you fly into the eyes of these kinds of storms? <laughs> well, I've, I've been in a hurricane on land 
on a ship and in the air. I take in the air anytime. Uh, the experience on land, we were, we were living in this, the house where we are now during Andrew, and uh, it was a miserable experience, and it went on being miserable for a year afterwards. And our house wasn't very badly damaged. Is this the kind of hurricane, Ian, that you suspect Florida is going to have to, not that they're going to get used to it, but they're going to have to deal with increasingly as the years now go by? Yeah. uh, I've been, uh, I teach a class in hurricanes and uh, that and uh, uh, just I'm writing a paper on it as well. And for the last five years, now six years this year, there's been some sort of memorable hurricane in the Western Hemisphere. Not always a U.S. hurricane. Dorian sit, sat still over uh, Grand Bahamas, but mostly uh, in the U.S. because that's where the value is. The, the people are more affluent. But one after another, every year for the last six years now, there's been something memorable. In the past, there'd be several years that go by, and then you'd get a memorable hurricane. Or maybe, like happened in 1954 or 55, there were three hurricanes affected the mid-Atlantic states in each year. But that didn't happen every year. And now we've had six in a row. And the, the thing before then, there were three El Nino years where there was also almost no impact. And... Uh, uh, I'm doing a statistical thing about, well, yeah, the global warming is real, but what makes people believe, think about the floods, the droughts, and uh, uh, the the effects of wildfires, the effects of global warming uh, outside of hurricanes. The thing that impresses you is there, there are droughts in Europe, there are droughts in Australia, there's droughts in California, there are floods in the East Coast, and it's going on, you know, it's multiple occurrences at the, at either the same time or right after each other. Yeah, all around the world. And, and we talked before, like, we're getting those extremes, maybe not for a few years, but then they all come in a row when you get them this year. Hugh Willoughby, professor, Florida International University in Miami. Evacuation orders are in effect for about two and a half million people in Florida. Many have left their homes and even the state itself, but not everyone. Some people are staying with plans to ride it out or leave later if it gets really bad where they are. With us now is Adam Feldman. He lives just north of Tampa, staying home, at least for now. And he also happens to be related to me. Uh, So, Adam, uh, how are you? And uh, my other question is, I understand your dad has has decided to evacuate. You stayed. So of the two of you, who's the smarter? Well, I guess that's going to depend on the way the wind blows, Charles. (laughs) No, I think that we'll be all right. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. The rain's starting to pick up. But uh, there was that cone of uncertainty that my immediate area was outside of, and these things tend to track a little south. I've been kind of like an amateur meteorologist having lived here since 92 and uh, just intently watching it and uh, decided that 
at a time where it was going to be a question mark as to whether to leave or not, the outbound roads were so congested that I decided I, I had already done the prep work needed to hunker down and I was going to do just that. Yeah, I wanted to know on the street there, is it like just you in the house or just some of the neighbors staying too? How many people did, did get out of the area? I, I don't know if it's just uh, kind of becoming accustomed to these storms coming. Like maybe you, go, if I was in California and I had a 2.3 Richter earthquake, I would be going nuts and everybody else would be looking at me like I was <laughs> I didn't overreacting. Feel it. Yeah. But, uh, but here it's, it's, I don't think a single person on the street so much is boarded up. I know that I have a brand new roof. I have uh, kind of like a safety thing on the windows and I also uh, stocked up on supplies. So I figured I was better served. As I say this, the power's flickering in the house, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, something like a half a million people throughout the western part of, of Florida are without electricity. Some in, in uh, Tampa where you are, but you've had power up until now at least. Yep, I, I've maintained power. Really, it's all the, the coastal communities. I'm just inland enough, and I don't have a – I have a lake behind me, but it's not a river, so it's not fed into some more larger body of water, and as a result of which, there's no real storm surge, and I think that's what's really taken out a lot of the electricity. Now, is leaving still on your mind if it does get really bad, and then you're always playing the game of like, okay, well, do I have time to go now, or is it too late? I think at a certain point, it becomes too late. After the winds get to a certain level in Florida, they stop sending out first responders and they won't send them back out again until after uh, the wind has lessened. So after a certain point, if I didn't, if I was going to leave, I would have left at six o'clock this morning. After that, it's better to hunker down. How many hurricanes have you been through? Oh, countless. I think when I first moved here in 92, there was Andrew Big ones were Charlie, which looked like it was going to pass through this way. Wilma, Francis, Katrina went through Florida before it went to New Orleans. Uh, I mean, in high school, I used to take an all-wheel drive vehicle out and a camera with a couple friends and go out to the beaches as the storms were coming in. I'm not doing that anymore, but <laughs> it's just, I've always had a fascination with the storms. And when you say, you know, you got ready, uh, what do you have and how long are you prepared to go, you know, without those lights on if they keep flickering and then go off? Well, uh, a bunch of candles. Uh, you turn the air conditioning down really low, so you get a couple extra minutes of it being cool in the house if you do lose power. You fill up the bathtub with water so you have uh, something to flush or wash things with if you if you absolutely needed to. Uh, lots of jugs of water, canned foods, and then uh, moving all the kind of what would be flying debris and lawn furniture inside the house or into a place that's safe. I mentioned at the outset that your your mom and dad decided to to flee. <laughs> Why did they decide to do that? What was the discussion like? Do you know? Well, I know that there's even 30 minutes closer via car to the beach than I am makes a significant difference with the result of the, like the wind. Uh, they also have a preserve in their backyard, and there was a risk of you know trees falling and the water level rising from the preserve. And also, they, I mean, they have access to a place in North Carolina, so if you can head for Z Hills, then I guess, I mean, I could have gone with them, but actually I couldn't have left until about three o'clock yesterday afternoon, uh, just making sure all the things at work were properly secured. All the, the things that could get flooded would move off the, the bottom row of the bottom racks of things. But um, by the time I was going to leave, all the major roads to leave were parking lots. And I thought I was prepared enough and the storm was tracking further south. So 
I mean, the cool thing about hurricanes being that five, six days out, we knew generally it was going to go to the western side of Florida. It was going to hit somewhere between Fort Myers, Naples, and all the way north to about an hour north of me. And so everybody was kind of put on guard. And about five, six days ago, they declared a state of emergency. So they fixed the price of certain goods. And you don't have to worry about the water or the gas shooting up to a crazy exorbitant amount of money. And it just, uh, it seems like it's been well executed thus far. You're going to check on him, you know, family and all. Charles? Yeah. Well, say, say hi to your mom and dad. <laughs> Send my regards. <laughs> Stay safe. Absolutely will. And I'll uh, check in on the interwebs as soon as there's power to do so. All right. <laughs> okay. There he goes. Adam Feldman lives uh, just north of Tampa. Coming up, a new study offers hope for treating Alzheimer's disease. And Bill O'Reilly, the former Fox News host, he will be chatting with us about all things politics and his new book in the Killing series that features three big celebrities. Right now, though, lots of events surrounding the war in Ukraine. Russia trying to stop its citizens from leaving uh, to avoid a draft. The U.S. telling its citizens get out of Russia right now in case you're drafted. And then there's damage to the Nord Stream gas pipeline that could be sabotaged. Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, CNN Global Affairs Analyst. Thanks for being back with us. Maybe let's start with the last one, then we'll backpedal to the others. Do you have a theory as to what's going on with that gas pipeline? Uh, no, the Danes are reporting the possibility of sabotage. And, and I think the best way to look at this is look at it as part of a piece. The U- Ukrainians made a stunning set of maneuvers in the Northeast and in the South, counteroffensive. Putin responded with, I think, a three, a sort of three-part uh, triple down. Number one, and the referendums, which are uh, are taking place, have taken place, in order to annex parts of the Donbass and other parts of Ukraine uh, to Russia proper. Second, not an implicit, but an explicit threat of nuclear, possible deployment of nuclear weapons. And number three, the deployment, limited, partial. Uh, Some Russian analysts believe that it could at, at one point or another make almost a million men available. And these three things, I think, are Putin's way of demonstrating um, that he's playing a very weak hand but he still has options at his disposal. So I think the uh, <clears throat> the Nord Stream 1 and 2, both of which are not active, thankfully, it won't affect Russian gas flows uh, to Europe, are a sign that uh, don't mess with me. I- I've got options, and uh, I- including up the scale uh, on the nuclear side. So uh, we're talking about the annexation uh, of parts of Ukraine, right? I think by the end of this week, the plan is that they're going to announce uh, that uh, that uh, uh, referendum, which I think most people consider to have been basically fraudulent. But that referendum is going to support Putin's contention that uh, the folks there want to be part of Russia. But is this where it gets really not that it wasn't dangerous before, but is this where it really becomes that much more dangerous in a in a significant way? I mean, only to the extent if Putin, the logic chain is very simple. These are not part, parts of Russia will be. Therefore, if Ukraine or NATO, with NATO-supplied weapons, attacks parts of Russia, uh, Putin might argue that um, he can escalate. Uh, the problem with the annexations, uh, and again, I don't think they're designed to fool anybody in the West, uh, it's for domestic politics and, and largely to, to compel those recruits uh, who are, were not obliged or even conscripts to fight in faraway places to defend the motherland. So now 
Putin has a rationale. The only problem with the annexation is that, um, you know, it's Russian territory. So the defeat is even going to be more humiliating if Ukraine manages in coming months. And we're not talking about anything that uh, is going to be over very quickly. In coming months or into 2023, uh, Ukraine takes back that territory or parts of it. It's humiliating for Russia. Look, I, I think Putin either recognizes that he has very few cards to play and wants to try to play them as, as, as deftly as possible. Or alternatively, he's still suffering from some sort of self-delusion that the Ukraine strategy, plan A or plan, plan B, can, uh, can simply work. Either way, it raises the stakes, I think, for NATO. I've seen some arguments over whether all the people fleeing actually means anything at the end of the day. Is this, you know, there are so many millions of other people there that it that it doesn't. Or is this a real signal that, you know what, a lot of these young guys, especially, they don't remember the USSR. So when he says, you know, what, we need to go back to the old Soviet days, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to war for this. I mean, look, I think it, it could be a little bit of both. Uh, and, you know, there are people I know who, Russia, who study Russian internal politics for a living. I think we have to be very, very, very careful not to overread or overanalyze or misinterpret these data points, which frankly are significant. The real problem for Putin, it seems to me, it does not come from public arrest, uh, unrest, does not come from uh, people speaking out or Russians leaving the country. It comes from the increasing realization on the part of the Sloviki, the Russian security military establishment and, the, and some of the bureaucracy involved in the intelligence and military side of things that Vladimir Putin, master tactician, brilliant strategist, really A, does not know what he's doing, and B, is uh, taking Russia down a road that may take decades uh, from which to, um, to, to which to return. Ukraine is not an existential issue for Russia, you could argue. It's increasingly an existential issue for Putin. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Katie Couric says she was diagnosed with breast cancer over the summer, wrote that she had surgery and radiation treatments that finished this week. She also wrote she had missed a routine screening that should have taken place about eight months into the pandemic, and that raises questions about what's happening with other women, especially those who don't have the access to the same doctors and health care as Kirk. Dr. Jack uh, Jacob is a medical oncologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, Katie Kirk is, uh, by her own admission, an example uh, of what many women, in fact, actually men too, uh, who have neglected medical care and testing and things like that because of the pandemic, right? Correct. Thankfully, it sounds like uh, uh, her story may be a little bit better prognostic than some people um, where she only received uh, chemotherapy. I'm sorry, she received surgery and, and radiation therapy and didn't uh, require chemotherapy um, without knowing the specifics of her, of her situation. Um, but it applies to other cancers as well. As you mentioned, men and, and prostate cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening. It's estimated to be uh, about a 10 million population uh, or 10 million individual delay in getting screening over the two years of the pandemic. And so those patients will usually um, hopefully plug back into the system and get screening um, and get caught up. But uh, at times we catch cancers actually late. 
um, where prognosis is different, treatment is different. Um, I've personally had a number of cases where fairly convincingly uh, it was a delay in them seeking medical care for a year or two because of their fear of um, exposure, et cetera, and uh, coming in with uh, symptomatic disease that could have probably been caught much earlier. Um, and that's just an anecdotal experience of our own cancer center. Um, but yes, it, it definitely is an interesting point that um, screening was significantly delayed or missed those year or two. They had a, a consequence uh, a lot of, in a lot of ways. She was saying in her post she was six months late and she shuddered to think what might have happened if she had put it off even longer. Do you think that we think like, oh, you know, four, six months, it's no big deal. I'll get to it soon. And then it can it can be another six months and a lot can happen during that time. Yeah, a lot can happen in that time. I mean, an interval of six months when it comes to breast cancer is a relatively short interval, but if it brought it to light, then um, maybe biologically that's a little bit more of an aggressive uh, form of breast cancer, but six months can make a very big difference. Um, and so screening at the end of the day is meant to save lives. And the earlier you catch cancer, it, the more likely you're going to save someone's life. And so if that concept applies, um, any delay on, on that diagnosis, there's a consequence in terms of survival. And in in fairness, because I don't want listeners who may have delayed or had uh, their treatments or testing delayed because of the pandemic to, to kind of, you know, beat themselves over it. Because in fairness, in many cases, it wasn't the patient who delayed. It was because, especially in the beginning days, as you know, of the pandemic, medical centers were canceling elective procedures. A lot of physicians were not doing routine tests because people were were kept sort of more in isolation. So there's kind of a lot of blame to go around, right? No question. Uh, In March and and April of 20, uh, it went from X miles per hour to zero. Everything shut down, uh, especially uh, elective procedures and screening studies, et cetera. And so um, with the upswing of of things uh, over the year or two, um, one would hope that people would be accessing their uh, healthcare system and getting their screenings caught up. Um, but again, the, even now, two years out, you still hear some stories of people delaying access and, do, you know, finally coming coming out and seeing their physicians. Um, so it, it's, it's really surprising, actually, uh, how long some individuals uh, take to get uh, plugged back in. Um, and it's, you know, it's a lot of things to it, right? It's messaging, it's uh, their understanding of things. Um, uh, there's a lot of factors in terms of uh, whether patients uh, may understand or individuals may understand what's happening in terms of uh, health and screening and, and the importance of that. There's a lot of layers uh, that are that uh, potentially there's some quote unquote blame to, but um, it's a good it's a good situation that she mentions it and brings it up because it absolutely goes to the core issue over the past couple of years that have been discussed lots of places across the world, cancer centers, is that there's there's going to be a consequence to the two years of missed or delayed screening. Do you hear from patients who? drag their feet a little bit because they thought and they knew like, okay, there is going to be some momentary discomfort when this happens. So I'll just delay a little bit because I'm not super jazzed about going in and doing this. Yeah. And, you know, truthfully, the the centers have, uh, for the most part, uh, ramped up their preventative um, approaches to to, uh, viral transmission. I mean, that happened pretty early. And so we've tried to make it as safe as possible. But again, the messaging might be that avoiding all kind of public places, et cetera. So, you know, places where people could be sick, like the hospital or the, or the cancer centers or the screening study uh, places. So, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of places to look to explain uh, the, the observation of what's happened. But, you know, hopefully at this point people are coming back and the story brings it, uh, brings it to the forefront. Dr. Jack Jacob, medical oncologist, Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center. That's in Fountain Valley.
A new Alzheimer's drug may hold some promise. A study from drug makers uh, Biogen and Esai shows the drug reduced clinical decline by 27%. That was compared to a placebo drug after about 18 months. The next step, try to get FDA approval, could happen early next year. Are these findings significant, as the companies claim, as significant as they claim? Dr. Judy Pa is professor of neurosciences, co-director of the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study at UC San Diego. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So are we in exciting territory or not so fast territory? Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. So great question. These results came out late last night as what we call top line results through a press release from ISI and Biogen. And at this point, we are very cautiously optimistic. The trial was reported as positive, meaning that they did demonstrate clinical benefit, benefit for our patients and families. But these top line results are still limited. They just give us a little snapshot into what these main findings are. And we really need to wait until the end of November, early December, until a larger Alzheimer's disease meeting is going to happen in which they'll present the full results. So us as scientists and really for our communities and our patients want to see the full report before we we really break out the champagne. Is this even the preliminary results that have been reported? Does this then support the theory? And it is, I guess, uh, still a theory, but a, a leading one, right? That it's these uh, plaque formations, amyloid, do I have that right? A plaque uh, that might be the, the cause of Alzheimer's or at least one of the causes. And is this sort of almost proof of concept that if a drug can uh, somehow reduce those uh, plaques, protein plaques, right? Uh, and there's some improvement that that kind of proves that that's the cause and can be down the road perhaps controlled better? Yeah, great question. You know, you really hit the nail on the head that this is the biggest controversy in the field is around what you're what you're describing, these, these misfolded proteins that clump called um, amyloid plaques, you know, plaques we really commonly refer to with the general public plaques and tangles. So plaques is this, this beta amyloid protein. And there's a lot of controversy around the the cause of Alzheimer's disease. Right now, scientifically, they are viewed as the hallmark neuropathological features of plaques and tangles or amyloid and tau tangles. This this drug has been shown um, biologically to hit that mark. So it does hit the beta amyloid plaques in the brain, and it reduces that clumping that happens with amyloid plaques. You know, it gets a lot more complicated. It's it's as we know a very um, tricky disease and multifactorial, and there's a lot of different aspects that are at play. But this does seem to hit at least one of those. Where in the progression of the disease is this meant to be used, and, and how does it aim to help? This that's a very important question for for our patients and families. Um, we always try to think about the right drug, the right target, and the right time. At what stage do we treat patients? We want to have treatments that can that can uh, benefit patients who are clinically experiencing the disease, while also thinking about it from a prevention perspective. So for this specific trial, it included a little bit of a broader range. So it was people who we will describe as having this this symptom of mild cognitive impairment where it's very early, and in this case, they had to have demonstrated evidence of these amyloid plaques in the brain through PET imaging. What who were also included in this trial were those who have mild Alzheimer's disease dementia, meaning that they are starting to have some difficulties in taking care of themselves, um, their activities of daily living. And so it was a little bit of, of this border between what we call MCI and early AD, 
And those who, those are the individuals that were in this trial called Clarity that have shown this, this benefit. But going back to wanting to see the full report of, of trying to understand a little bit better, were there differential benefits between different patients? I don't know that we'll see that in November or not, because it may be completely aggregated or just the full snapshot of everybody who was in the trial. But this helps us get closer and closer into understanding which is the best drug and for whom and at what stage. And I do believe that there are some other uh, competing pharmaceutical companies working on similar uh, medications. Uh, so are we, in your view, kind of now finally at the threshold of, and again, I understand the caveats of wanting to see the published reports, but is your kind of general sense being in the field that we are at a turning point perhaps? Yeah, well, you know, this really started this, this what you're describing as this turning point and other companies pursuing the same approach. I mean, studying anti-amyloid therapies has been around for, for many years. Um, with the approval of aducanumab, which we, we know has not been without its own controversies, has really kickstarted this, this accelerated route through looking at anti-amyloid therapies. Lecanumab is one of those and, you know, really exciting that it is showing clinical benefit. Similar to aducanumab, they both showed that they targeted the same protein and that they had biological um, relevance and efficacy. But what we really need for our patients and what we see you know, in, in our loved ones is that we want to have clinical benefit. We want to be able to see that their cognition is preserved or that they're stabilizing and no longer declining. And so that's that's been our our holy grail that in all of our studies, whether or not this type of biological target or a different neuropathology um, helps maintain cognition and um, and daily function. Are we at least closer in that realm to like getting something that can maybe slow the progression instead of just kind of managing some of the other things that happen, you know, managing anxiety or some of the other symptoms that can go along with, with a decline? Yeah, I would say that, that we are, um, as you're pointing towards for many of our, our loved ones suffering with dementia, we want to be able to preserve quality of life as much as possible and help mom remain mom and dad remain dad. But ultimately, if we can target the underlying biology and have an impact on that biology, then that gets us closer and closer to what we ultimately want to be able to do, which is prevent or treat the disease. We are going to run out of time, so I'm going to try to, to squeeze in one other uh, quick question anyway, but maybe the answer won't be that quick. Because uh, we've been talking about a leading theory, these these plaques uh, on the brain as perhaps the cause of uh, Alzheimer's and medications designed to attack that. Is there another leading theory that, that perhaps in the popular press we're not cognizant of that is competing as a possible explanation? So there's two, the quick short answer um, for time is that there's two main pathological hallmarks. One of those is amyloid plaques that we're talking about right now. The other side of it is tau tangles. And then we haven't even got into several other cascade, cascading events that may impact it, which is tied to vascular health and neuroinflammation. So there's there's this is one piece of a, of a much bigger picture. Dr. Judy Pong, professor of neurosciences, co-director of the Alzheimer's Cooperative at UC San Diego. 
This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you follow the news, I don't know, like ever, you probably know Bill <laughs> O'Reilly, mainstay for years on Fox, hosting the O'Reilly Factor, interviewing presidents, world leaders, celebs, other newsmakers. Well, and of course, he's also a, a really well-known author out with a new book now in his popular killing series. This one is called Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. It focuses on Elvis. Interesting how, how Elvis is one of those people that you don't have to do a second name, right? A lot of celebrities you do. If you say Elvis, no, one is, yeah, no one's going to go, Elvis? Who? No, Elvis, John Lennon, and Muhammad Ali. Bill is with us now. Bill, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. If ever there were an area in the world that should read Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity, it is the Southern California area. <laughs> this is the apex of the celebrity culture in the world. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, this is a serious history book, uh, a book that uh, examines American culture through the eyes of three titans who changed it. Uh, it's not a frivolous uh, movie star thing. Uh, and it's examination of how um, celebrity crushes most people who experience it. And you guys know the list. You just go down at how many people who just got exterminated by their fame. Bill, how, and, how, uh, how, let, me, let me ask you, though, Bill, why of, the, of all the celebrities, and there are plenty who are icons, uh, how did you settle on, on John Lennon, Elvis, and Muhammad Ali? Why those three in particular? Because they all changed American culture. Let me give you one very vivid example. 1950s, post-World War II, Dwight Eisenhower president. America was a land of conformity. Very little dissent. Uh, everybody looked the same, sounded the same. Within the space of eight minutes on the Ed Sullivan Show, the most powerful entertainment show in the world at that time, a teenager from Tupelo, Mississippi, changed the entire American culture. Elvis Presley went on, sang hound dogs, swiveled his hips, Ed Sullivan was befuddled. They wouldn't shoot him below the waist. <laughs> Girls were screaming. The next day, pastors all over America were condemning Elvis as an agent of Satan, burning his records. Parents demanding their boys not look like him, slick their hair back, wear leather jackets. The entire culture of the United States was changed by a teenager, Elvis Presley. And then if you want to extend it into the 60s, here come the Beatles from Great Britain from 64 to 69. The entire American culture changes again. Sex, yeah. drugs, rock and roll. It's a different kind of fame. You, you, you said the fame killed these three. How did it do that? What happened to them? Who? Any what of happened them. to whom? The fame. You said the fame kills them. How does it kill them? What part of being famous leads to the downfall inevitably? Okay. So once we establish why these men are important to American culture and overlooked by most historians because they're snobs, then we get into what the commonality is. So all three men lost controls of their lives. And you know what happened to Elvis? If you look at him in 67 on the comeback special at NBC, and then you look at him 10 years later, is this the human, same human being? Muhammad Ali uh, was almost killed in the Philippines fighting Joe Frazier and the Nation of Islam, which ran him, had him in the ring four months later, even though his doctor said, you can't do that, you're going to kill him. And then John Lennon became a heroin addict. 
How does that happen? And that's why the Beatles broke up. And so all of them lost control of their lives. They were crushed by this incredible celebrity that they were experiencing. Is it them getting isolated, which is a funny thing, because you're the most famous people on the planet? Is it not having good people around you? I mean, what happens? Because everyone thinks it's always a fairy tale, right? Oh, you're famous? You must be so happy. It's a cautionary tale, that's for sure. I mean, people who want to be famous, they don't know the unintended consequences. I didn't. I had no blanking clue. I thought it would be great to be a national broadcaster and have, like in Cheers, everybody know my name. (laughs) But the downside was tremendous. And when you're looking at uh, Ali, for example, um, probably the most brilliant athlete America has seen, and he ceded his whole life to Herbert Muhammad. And Herbert Muhammad said, jump, he jumped. And Elvis to Colonel Tom Parker, who's stolen blind. And John Lennon got involved with Yoko Ono, who's still alive, and became isolated. And the whole Beatle phenomenon blew up. And it was all because they didn't control their own destiny. And to this day, celebrity is more dangerous now than it was back then. Let's talk politics a bit, uh, Bill. Uh, and I, I always hesitate to paint with too broad a brush because none, no political party, as you know, is monolithic. But if you had to describe both the Republican and Democratic Party in 2022, how would you describe them? Well, the Democratic Party is run by progressives who want to change uh, the fundamental uh, traditions of America. They want to do it in every area. And um, primarily in the economic area, they'd like the economy to be run by the government. So that's Democrats. Republicans are all over the place because there's no leadership there. Donald Trump is not a traditional Republican. He's a populist and he has some conservative positions, but he's primarily a deal maker, a guy who goes into the economy and tries to uh, accomplish certain things. So the ideology on the Republican side, which used to be self-reliance, small government, has kind of dissipated because of the personalities, the strong personalities of Trump and a guy like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Does the former president have too much baggage with everything going on? Or the minute he says, I'm running, everybody falls in line? Nobody's going to fall in line. Um, I think that Trump has got some problems. Um even securing the nomination on the Republican side. He's well ahead in the polls, and I believe those polls are accurate. But he's got to do something dramatic like put DeSantis on the second. It would have to be like a Trump-DeSantis ticket. If Trump just uh, decides to go it alone, he's going to have a problem. Even though he did succeed economically as president, there's no doubt about that. Think back two years, how much better the uh, economic profile was in the USA as to now. On the Democratic side, it's simply no way Joe Biden is going to run for president again. It's not going to happen. If you watch the 60 Minutes interview 10 days ago, you could see he's done. And they don't have anybody either to really step up uh, because there's not going to be Kamala Harris. She's very unpopular. And Newsom is the guy who's making his move, the governor of California, of course. So I would say that the state of national politics is in flux. Yeah, I was going to say, wouldn't you think, uh, and certainly I think a lot of the country would think, 
that Governor Newsom is just too far to the left, although he would probably reject that characterization. But but is he not viewed as being too far to the left for most of the country? Well, you would think so, but I don't know if that's a lock, because the uh, midterm election should be a referendum on the progressive Biden administration, and they should get waxed. Now, I think they will in the House, but the Senate, nobody knows because there's so many bad candidates there. And Newsom obviously presides over your state. Uh, Millions of people are leaving your state. They can't live there anymore for a variety of reasons. I don't think that's a strong resume to run for president, but he's photogenic. Uh, He understands how to manipulate the media and he's going to have a ton of money. So if you uh, underestimate Gavin Newsom, you're doing it at your own peril. Is Newsom DeSantis the big battle? Well, it might be. And and certainly Newsom wants to uh, make it that. DeSantis had a brilliant stroke by uh, sending those migrants to Martha's Vineyard because what DeSantis needs now is name recognition. Outside of Florida, unless you you know, watch the TV news and you're involved with politics, and most Americans are not, you don't know who he is. But now, like Cheers, everybody knows his name <laughs> because of what he did in the vineyard. It was a brilliant stroke. You know, over and the, oh, go ahead, it go ahead. might wind up Newsom against DeSantis. It might. You know, uh, last weekend, Bill, uh, a former uh, Clinton insider went on the talk shows, the Sunday talk shows, and, and said that he thought, you know, that Biden was not going to be the the nominee. But he advanced the theory that the party was going to turn back to, yeah, guess who, Hillary Clinton. I, I mean, is that even possible in your view? And would that not be suicidal for the party? I don't believe that'll happen. Uh, Hillary Clinton is personally unpopular, and that's not going to change. You know, here's what's interesting. I know uh, some of her circle, and her close friends really like her. I mean, they really say she's a very charming woman, a caring woman. Certainly doesn't come across that way. And I don't think she's got a chance uh, to uh, get the Democratic nomination. The Democrats are in trouble. Because Biden is such a bad president, I, I rank him number two after two years in office of all time. The worst president was James Buchanan before the Civil War. And Biden's number two because of how he's destroyed the economy and so quickly. And now we got Putin saber rattling with nukes. That is a serious situation. And, you know, my thesis is uh, getting back to uh killing the legends that fame has crushed Joe Biden has absolutely torn him to pieces, his fame and power, um, because that is something that it's very hard to harness that extremely hard. Could you not, though, say the same of Trump? Absolutely. Excellent point. Donald Trump is addicted to fame. I talked to him about it and I said, you don't have to fight every battle. You don't have to be in the news cycle every day. It's wearing people out. But it's almost like a drug. He needs it. And that's what I'm talking about in Killing the Legends. Is once this fame thing comes in, you can't control it. It's Bill O'Reilly, former Fox News host, and the book, Killing the Legends, Lethal Danger of Celebrity. Bill, thanks for coming on the show. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.